Hello, and welcome to the Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. On this episode, I speak with Tim Gilliams and David Brown of Helix. Helix uses artificial intelligence to repurpose existing drugs for rare diseases. They have created a knowledge graph of relevant public and proprietary data, which they use to predict novel disease-drug relationships. They claim their approach can bring new treatments to patients 80% faster and 90% cheaper than traditional approaches. On this episode, you'll learn how rare diseases are surprisingly common, why drug repurposing holds so much promise to treat them, and how Helix uses AI to do it. And you will, I hope, be inspired by a powerful example of AI's potential in healthcare. This episode is brought to you by BenchSci. BenchSci uses artificial intelligence to reduce the time, uncertainty, and cost of scientific experiments. Use it to find research antibodies up to 24 times faster than using PubMed or Google Scholar. Just enter a protein of interest and filter by technique, organism, tissue, or 15 other options. BenchSci returns only relevant published figures and products. Researchers in 14 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies and more than 1,300 academic institutions now rely on BenchSci to find antibodies. It's free for researchers in academic and nonprofit institutions. You can sign up at BenchSci.com. If you work in industry, just use the contact form on BenchSci.com to reach out for a demo. And now, on to the interview. Tim, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. So to start, I want to congratulate you on raising your Series A. The announcement uh, came out this morning, which is great. And I've gone through this process recently as well, so I can relate. So I want to ask you both, how does it feel to have investors back your vision? Um, yeah, th- thank you for, for asking, Simon. Um, we feel incredibly excited and it's been a super journey. So the, the, the lead investor for the round is a, a big European tech investor, um, Balderton Capital, and the partner who came on board, uh, Suranga, is incredible. So he, he used to be the CTO of Autonomy and then started a, a startup himself called uh, Blinks. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's great news uh, for the company and, uh, and Balderton has been amazing. And, and Dave, I'm curious, your perspective, which is less of the technology side, you, you spent a lot of time uh, in pharmaceutical companies. Um, was this your first time going through a venture raise? Oh, no, I've been doing it for nearly 20 years, um, been involved with various startups, starting them myself, and, and also as chair of the board of various others that I have not started myself. Um, this really was the fastest, easiest fundraise I've ever been involved in. It probably didn't feel like it to Tim doing it for the first time, uh, but we went for, you know, from 
we went from beginning to end in five months at high speed uh, with a lot of interest. We had a choice of investors. Uh, and that is a pretty rare situation. And I think it shows that the timing is absolutely right for AI and healthcare. And I think the model we've put together in this business is, is a winner as well. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would agree. And, and we also uh, did a raise for AI related to drug discovery and a similar experience. It was quite expedited and exhilarating. So I want to get into that a little bit further and talk about your focus on rare diseases. So some of our listeners might wonder why you focus in this area. And, and Dave, this might be particularly the case for you, given that you've worked in some of the largest pharmaceutical companies in the world. You're a co-inventor of Viagra, which is one of the most widely used and well-known drugs. So why did you want to focus at this stage of your career and focus the company on rare diseases? Um, so, I think the, the, the reason why we started to focus on rare diseases was because of the story of uh, a child and his father. So, Bertrand Might and his dad, uh, Matt Might, in the US, uh, basically, um, he was diagnosed with uh, the first ever um, rare disease of um of this type and so Matt Might was told that you know there was no hope for his son that there were no treatments and was basically told to to enjoy the last you know few years with his child and he he wrote about it in the New Yorker and when when we read that we were working on using AI for 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 drug discovery and so we contacted him and um, to try and help him find treatments uh, for, for his son. And, and then we realized that actually, you know, they were not alone worldwide. There are 350 million people affected by a rare disease. So that's the entire population of the United States. And 95% of the rare diseases don't have an approved treatment. And so after meeting Matt and Bertrand, uh, we really um, realized there was a huge therapeutic and met needs and that um, AI could help solve those problems. And, and with, with Dave's background, I'm, I'm going to hand over to him now. Yeah, there were a couple of other reasons based on my pharmaceutical experience. The big pharmaceutical companies have hundreds of people working in each disease area, usually sort of 100, 300, 400 they have real depth of expertise in those diseases and we didn't want to be competing head-on with them in those major diseases. Um, also, if you look at the way drug discovery has been done in the past, we wanted to do it in a very different way. We, did, we don't believe that just optimizing the old process is, is the future. We, we believe it needs a totally different approach. So the big advantage of working in rare diseases is, is we work with the patient groups. Um, so the, what often happens, as with Matt Might, is that the parents get pretty desperate. They set up a charity. They pull together other parents. They raise funding. They then start to fund academic research. And that leads through to animal models and eventually to clinical trials. By working with the patient groups, um, we tap into that deep expertise in the diseases as partners. Um, they have often put the whole 
progression pathway in place um, that a pharmaceutical company has to put in place for their own diseases. So this partnership with the patient groups is an enormously attractive thing for us. And that's part of the reason we went into this area. Mm -hmm. I've worked on the commercial side and I know that one of the the mantras now is being more patient centric. And I've had a limited amount of experience on the commercial side with rare diseases. And, you know, you you talk about patient centric, it is very patient driven, just like you said, uh, and the advocacy groups are hugely involved. They're often way more knowledgeable than their own physicians about the diseases and the disease areas uh, by nature. I want to pick up on one thing you said, Dave, about pharmaceutical companies. You, so, of course, they have hundreds of people working on these different therapies and, and different areas. But why is it so hard for them to bring new treatments to market for rare diseases? Or why does that seem to not really be a, a focus? Well, it's hard in any disease. I mean, you know, the failure rate's enormous. Um, I mean, I'm sure you're aware of the figures of sort of 95% or more failure rate per project. And that's absolutely correct. Um, some big companies are working on rare diseases, but it tends to be a more of a commercial matter for them. By the time you, you're a big pharmaceutical company, you've really got to be going for blockbuster drugs, billion plus dollars sales. And they just think the patient numbers in rare diseases don't support that kind of potential um, commercial return. And, and the, the result of, of having the traditional pharma model focused on blockbuster drugs is that, you know, you end up with 7,000 rare diseases where 95% don't have an approved treatment and where really AI and technology can play a role is to actually, you know, transform the drug discovery model, uh, having one that's much lower cost and, and data-driven and where you can suddenly look at rare diseases and try and develop programs for them uh, where the costs are, are much lower and, and the, the return is not a, a blockbuster model. So this is a really key point that um, we are, the way we're, we are tackling the rare diseases, we can get drugs through to clinical trials, phase two trials, at a fraction of the cost that the pharmaceutical companies do. Firstly, because our whole drug discovery process is very different. Secondly, because we're working with the patient groups um, who often have access to the um, appropriate trial centers anyway. So to give you an example, um, one of the very first projects we did actually, um, Fragile X, we worked with Fraxer Association in the US, um, Fragile X Association, started by two parents who had who had two children with the disease, unfortunately. Um, they've done a brilliant job of, um, of building the ecosystem, as I described earlier, over 20 years, putting everything in place from patient support through academic studies, and, and they're running clinical trials now as well, or funding clinical trials. And it took us only 18 months to go from startup to being phase 2A ready. I mean, they, we came up with, with an invention that in the animal models was as good as anything they'd ever seen. In fact, probably the best they'd ever seen out of 60 or 70 drugs tested. And I spent June with them for a few days and some clinicians planning how we're going to get this to the clinic. They want to start in August, which is only a few weeks away. Um, it will probably be a bit later than that because we need to 
um, do a bit more planning. But we will go from literally from startup to clinic in 18 months. Whereas a typical pharmaceutical company will take five, seven, eight years or more. And, and we did this with the $100,000. Yeah, and you compare that, you know, when I think of, when I think of my budget in Roche, for instance, um, uh, I guess it's even more now, but it would have cost tens of millions of dollars to get a new drug um, from to this stage with a very high failure rate. Mm -hmm. We've done it for 100000 and then and, hundred, hundred, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, to make patients and physicians aware that the treatment even exists. Uh, sorry, Tim, you were going to say. Yeah. So yeah, I wanted to 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 add to to Dave's point. So when when Dave was was global head of drug discovery at Roche, he used to have two thousand scientists and you know enormous budgets, and now he has twenty techies and gets a drug in phase 2A for $100,000. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's... Well, I just want to talk I about... I must say I have to thank him for that, for his brilliance and what he's put together here. Sure, sure. I, I want to um, make sure, because I, I, I think I, I'm aware of how your, or what your approach is, but I don't think we've touched on it yet. So I want to take it back just a step here, uh, because the way you're approaching this, as I understand it, is through largely through repurposing existing treatments, which helps because you've already cleared a lot of the hurdles for a, a very early stage compound. And Tim, I saw a video where you gave a really great example of aspirin having multiple uses. Can you explain that analogy and how it relates to the way you're approaching drug development for rare diseases? Um, th thank you, Simon. That's a, a great, great question. So I think on one hand, uh, aspirin has been developed and we know it's safe, it's cheap, it has different purposes and, and the challenge is to try and identify some of those uh, new applications or therapeutic effects in a, I guess, systematic way. And if, if we take the, the Viagra example that, you know, Dave invented um, there as well, it's, it's almost by accident that they noticed um, um, a strong side effect and, um, and so now it's really trying to, as part of the model, use and look at all the existing drugs, nutraceuticals, and see how we can effectively and in a you know, systematic approach find new uses for them. But it's actually much more than repurposing. It's, we're also looking at combination therapies and also looking at really define the population, the patient population that will respond. And, and rare diseases for that are pretty um, exceptional from a scientific perspective because you usually have a very clear genetic mutation. And so you can really use that as part of the, in, in the modeling and, and predictions to try and match the right treatments um, to, to the right patient and the right rare disease. And so if, if we take a, a step back, What's, what's great about having, you know, started the company with, with Dave, because he, he had 40 years in drug discovery and, and managed to, you know, develop, bring a number of drugs to market, you know, that, that turned over 40 billion actually in sales. So, so that's, that's, not, that's not bad. And, uh, but he also 
you know, walked out of there with a huge amount of frustration around the pharmaceutical model. And so when, when we started the company, the first thing he said was that the best and safest way of developing a drug is to start from an existing drug. And so we, we actually didn't look at the NCEs and the new, new drugs to start with and really build a model where we're trying to maximize the potential of existing drugs and, and nutraceuticals. And, and because most diseases actually will need a combination of drugs to really have an effect um, that's beneficial, um, a big part of our activities is to look at combinations as well using AI. And, and I don't know if Dave wants to say a bit more about um, the Fragile X example. Yeah, just to give an example, give that, use that as an example of how we, how we go about um, finding these drugs. So we've built a system called HealNet, which combines a massive amount of medical and scientific data, everything from you know, disease, gene, pathways, targets, drugs, drug properties, etc. And so when we were working on a project like Fragile X, we worked with a patient group um, spend a lot of time at the beginning understanding the disease from them because you know it, if you're a parent with a child with that disease the symptomology is what you're noticing and that's what you care about with fragile x the children are hyperactive they have bowel problems they have intellectual deficits about a third of them have epilepsy um, you know the list goes on there are many symptoms so we listen to them very carefully um, learn what really matters to them because you probably aren't going to cure the disease but at least you can make it livable with um, then we access um, genetic data but particularly transcriptomic data the RNA that's coming from the DNA um, we get some of that from public databases but we get a lot from the patient groups and that really is um, very important to us um, a lot of the data though is not usable. I mean, you know, people say data is free these days, but it's very noisy. So we have, you know, I'd call the core of this company is our data curators, uh, who are the kind of unsung heroes. And we've got, we've got several of them that really go through the data, figure which data sets are usable and which are not. We then use those um, in our HealNet system um, with our particular proprietary way then of, of finding the medicines that, uh, that match those disease. And if you wish, I can describe to you how we do that. Yeah, actually, I would, uh, that was going to be one of my questions was how HealNet works. So I think you've described how you pull together data, some of it public, some of it proprietary from the patient groups you work with. Then you're sorting through that data as part of the pipeline, building out a knowledge graph and then analyzing it for disease drug interactions. So if that's correct, I, I would love to know a little bit more about how that works. Yeah, so we've got various um, algorithms. So these are this is what we call supervised machine learning. I, I guess you understand the difference between mm -hmm. unsupervised, supervised, et cetera, mm -hmm. and reinforced learning. Um, so we go initiative loops with the algorithms in, in the databases. The key difference between what we're doing and the old drug discovery model is that we don't guess at a target that might be appropriate. We don't then try and find uh, a new chemical lead. We don't then optimize that lead. It's those stages that really lead to the very, very high failure rate. 
So we bypass that totally by thinking in a very different way. And this really is what's so different about the approach we're, that we're taking that's been so successful so far. So what we're doing is essentially hypothesis free. That's the really key phrase here. Um, we take the transcriptomic data, which tells us which genes, or at least the, the RNA from the genes, is being overexpressed or underexpressed compared with a normal state. And then we look for a drug that reverses that pattern back to normal. In other words, it suppresses the overexpressed genes um, or upregulates the underexpressed genes. At that point, we have no idea how it's doing it. That's why it's kind of hypothesis free and avoids the whole issue of trying to guess a mechanism that might work. Mm -hmm. And we're doing this with safe drugs. And we, we've curated in our HegelNet database um, the drugs that we believe are safe to use chronically in children. Um, so we're matching those safe drugs to this um, adverse transcriptome profile and seeing which will reverse it back to normal. That's just one of our methods, actually. We've got several other methods as well. But that's the one that gave us the breakthrough in Fragile X uh, when we worked on that project. And, and I think to, to add to, to Dave's point, what's interesting is that um, it's the hypothesis-free model. So compared to more traditional uh, pharma model, you would typically have a, a favorite disease, a favorite target, a favorite mode of action, uh, you know, and, and, and probably a favorite set of molecules. And so you, you kind of bias your, um, your output. And so combining with the um, knowledge graph analysis and healnets, we actually try to look at all of the rare diseases, all of the drug space, and then also let the algorithms decide where you have the interesting matches. So we, we try to unbias as much as possible. Yeah. And same with the uh, you know, transcriptomic analysis or multiomic analysis that, that they've been describing, same thing. We try not to you know, bias the approach by saying, hey, that's your favorite gene mutation or target, and here's your favorite molecule. Actually, we, we, we start by hypothesis free. And so the interesting bit is that you don't know where you'll end up. And, and because of, of, of the first projects and, and the data that we've, we've looked at first, um, we have projects mainly in, in rare cancer and rare neuro at the moment, but we can literally um, end up in other disease areas. And, and the model that we've developed where we partner very closely with the patient groups make that we don't require to have this deep specific disease expertise because we can bring it in from the partnerships, key opinion leaders, and then suddenly you actually have a scalable model where we are not restricted by, you know, there's background in particular disease areas uh, because combination of pharmacology, the AI, and the disease expertise from, from the patient groups and key opinion leaders make that we can actually do this at scale and in a kind of parallel approach. So it means that with just tens of staff, we can do what a pharmaceutical company does with thousands of staff by working with the patient, uh, synergizing with their expertise in the disease. So again, that's another way we're doing, we're progressing this um, new medicine discovery in a totally different way. Sure, and it's you, you've built effectively 
a platform. I mean, is what it sounds like to me. It's a platform. And every time you're adding in more data, your platform is improving, your process is improving. And whereas a platform for a pharma company is really comprised of 2000 researchers, your platform is the technology. Uh, but that said, you do have humans in the loop, correct? After the first parts of your process using HealNet, it does then go on uh, to humans for analysis and uh, additional work. Um, I'm curious to know wh- why it's so important to to you to keep humans in the loop and and not just to rely entirely on the machine predictions? I think the machines aren't that clever at the moment, you know, Um, but it's very interesting. So for instance, I've done several panels in Brussels at the European Union on machine learning and artificial intelligence and healthcare. And, you know, the commissioners there are learning. They're they're very good. They're very smart. but you know they're dealing with a lot of different technologies so you have to explain it in a very simple way and the story i love is is when gary kasparov lost to um, the ibm computer um deep blue at chess in 1996 was it and he never beat the computer again after that so you could say machines are smarter than humans but there's another part of the story an average grandmaster working with an average laptop can beat the IBM computer. So, you know, the lesson is that machine and human are always going to be better than either alone. So the way I describe it to um, the EU commissioners is that the machine learning is helping the human make better decisions faster. Uh, So I think that loop will always be more effective than just trying to get a machine to come up with an answer by itself. Mm-hmm. Tim, did you have anything to add to that? Um, I think, I mean, this is, is a great question. And I think, you know, maybe a few years down the line, you know, there will be specific problems where actually you, you don't have uh, no longer human intervention. And, and, uh, and you know, that, that, that'd be great to a certain extent. I think now it's really um, the combination of people who have been in the industry for years, have seen, you know, many projects fail, also also had successes, but really then understand how we can flip the model around, use AI and technology to, to help um, achieve a new model and develop a new model, not just fix... Um, small parts of the old model. And, and I think what, what, what the investors really liked about uh, Helix is that we, we had a combination of really, you know, uh, tech-driven uh, background from, from, from Cambridge University, but also incredibly experienced drug developers who've, who've been, you know, leading drug discovery in some of the biggest uh, pharmaceuticals. And, and I think... Um, any startup or company that only have the tech but don't understand anything about drug discovery or pharmacology, I think uh, are going to have a, a pretty tough time at really translating stuff into the clinic. And this is, at the end, that's what it's about. It's about how quickly can you translate something uh, that's ready for a clinical trial and, and into the clinic. Everything before um, can be useful, but the aim is to, is to develop treatments for patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we see a lot of startups that enter the the space, and they see it as similar. You know that they're used to uh, consumer apps or software as a service pro- products for business, and then they 
encounter the difficulties of the healthcare landscape with regulation and privacy and all the specific issues around healthcare. And then, you know, you see them react the, the very quick reality check. I'm looking at the time here. I know we, we don't have too much more time. I've, I've learned so much and really enjoyed the, the conversation. Um, I just want to start to close this out a little bit by asking you both, you know, if you were to achieve the most ambitious vision you have for Helix, what would that look like? And what do you think some of the challenges are to achieve it? Um, now that, that's, that's a great question. And we may have two, two different, slightly different answers. Um, so I think what's, what's really exciting about um, what's possible with, with the kind of you know, AI-driven approach is that if you build the right infrastructure and the right tools, you can really start doing at scale and massively parallel. So as a normal biotech, you can maybe have maximum 10 programs. What we um, would be able to do is to potentially work on 100 rare diseases in parallel, a thousand rare diseases in parallel, and really have an impact that's you know, incredible on the rare disease community. So with, with the $10 million we just raised, we're gonna invest in, in the technology and building really the, the scalable parallel approach where we are able to work with, you know, potentially on hundred different rare diseases or even an order of magnitude higher. <clears throat> yeah, I would um, absolutely agree with Tim. I mean, I'm totally driven by reducing human suffering. And um, you know, what happens at the moment with many diseases is pretty awful. Cancer treatment is basically toxic. Um, and you know, it's debatable whether you're better off having the treatment or not very often. So I'd love to come up with a way of treating cancer with safe drugs that aren't toxic, just as a kind of specific goal. But if you ask me more broadly, when I started my career, um, the big pharmaceutical companies I worked for were the Googles, the Microsofts, the Facebooks of their day. They were growing at 15, 20, 30% a year. Um, and it was an incredibly exciting industry to work in. At the moment, they're struggling. They're down to sort of single-digit growth, and I think I read recently that the overall growth of the whole industry will be zero this year for the first time ever. Now, we need to make breakthroughs in human health, so we need to get the rate of breakthroughs back to where it was, and so you know, my vision for Helix is that if we can prove this new approach to drug discovery works, we can then take the healthcare industry back to the kind of growth it had in the past, the kind of growth that Apple and Google and Facebook have at the moment. That's a great vision. And uh, I did wanna, do, do you have thoughts on what the biggest barrier is to making that happen? Um, I think it's the cost of sequencing DNA RNA um, and at the single cell level as well. If we can just get those costs down um, another 10 to 100 fold, I think uh, things will really take off. And, and I think an, an additional uh, buyer is, is uh, a cult culture, uh, culture buyer. So I don't think, you know, um, the regulators, I don't think a lot of people in, in the pharma industry are fully ready yet to you know transform the model um, significantly uh, empowering the patient and really putting them at the center 
and 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 involving them from the very very beginning and so i think there is a, an element where i think the technology is actually moving much faster than than the regulators or also the clinicians who i mean they are overworked and are doing an amazing job but it's impossible for them to to keep track of all the new discoveries of all the new applications and so there's really um a challenge around taking up and applying those new technologies that are basically there, but it's just um, uh, using them effectively and quickly enough. That will be a challenge. Yeah, and this, this um, point that Tim made about patients taking control to some extent is what we're seeing. You know, I think people who are educated, who, who are very used to the internet, um, who can research their own disease, um, they are trailblazing what the future is going to look like. We want to give them access to the technology we have so that they can um, really research their own disease, drive the uh, finding of new therapies in exactly the way that Matt Mike did in the example that uh, inspired us right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. and, and just on a final um, note, so it's after meeting Matt, I don't even have to interview you. You can just basically interview each other, which is, <laughs> makes things easier. But no, please, go it's good. It's great. Um, so on, on, on the potentially a final note. So after meeting Matt, we met another chap called uh, Nick Siro, and what, what Dave was just explaining now is basically what 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 Nick did. So he had well. Two, two children with an ultra-rare disease, a black bone disease, um, and uh, less than 100 patients worldwide, and basically also told, okay, sorry, there are no treatments, and nothing we can do about it. And the guy um, didn't take no for an answer. He, he, he doesn't have a scientific background, no, no AI background, no uh, pharmacology background, and he managed to repurpose a weed killer that is now in phase three clinical trials and is effectively, you know, treating and curing his, his children and, and managed to raise 10 million pounds, you know, to do that. And that was with, with no support. So this is really, you know, parents, families who go on an incredibly entre entrepreneurial journey who decide to raise money, you know, do drug discovery themselves and in, in Nick's case you know he identified a weed killer that's basically saving his children and I mean that's just that's incredible yeah yeah I've, so we really want to help people like that succeed that's you can see how passionate we are about absolutely. it. absolutely I, I think it, I've always thought that if you could make drug discovery the equivalent of uh, not doesn't have to be as easy as it, but if you democratize it to the point where you, you do now with uh, computer software, really anybody can make an app or make an anything. And um, if you can have that level of experimentation, you would also just cre create exponential growth. Sure, 80% of that stuff wouldn't work, but a few of them would, um, and you get a lot more discovery. Uh, so really fascinating. I, I just want to, before we close this out, uh, is there anywhere where people can learn more about you? Obviously, you'll be in the news today with your Series A, and you have your website. I don't know if there's any upcoming conferences or papers where people can learn more. Um, yes, there are up upcoming conferences. Uh, I need to check um, when they are. I think there's a, a major 
uh, Orphan Drug Conference in New York coming soon, and we'll we'll post that um, on our website, and and that's uh, healx.io and all of the information. And, and I think in the news today, there's something in Forbes, uh, the Telegraph, um, and and other about um, the, the fundraising as well. Great. So thank you both so much for your time. I look forward to watching Helix's progress and impact. Um, I hope the interview really inspired listeners too to explore the possibilities of AI in general uh, for transforming the way we do drug discovery. I like the way you described it as well as, you know, it's not incremental tinkering here. We're completely changing uh, the model. And I think that's probably going to be how we get the biggest progress. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. Really enjoyed it. You just listened to my conversation with Tim Gilliams and David Brown of Helix. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you want to catch future episodes, be sure to subscribe. Just look for Artificial Intelligence in Drug Discovery in your favorite podcast player. Then hit the subscribe button. Until our next episode, be well and work smart.